When I was a student at NYU, I had to walk the streets of New York City every day. I didn't have the typical campus experience. My campus was the city. And so every day on my way to class, I would walk the streets of New York. And one of the things that you quickly learn in New York when you're walking the streets is that there is a lot of construction going on. There are scaffolds that are put up on so many streets as you're walking down the street in New York. And as I would pass these scaffoldings uh, on a regular basis, something began to happen. I started to get used to the scaffolding. I got used to it being there, and so I adjusted myself and made my adjustments around the scaffolding on my walks to class. It was on all of these different streets that I had to take to get to class. I had to walk about 10, 15 minutes to get to the classroom on a regular basis, and I would pass the scaffolding. I got used to it being there. I walked around the scaffolding, and you know, in New York, it's cluttered with people, and so you are all trying to make your way down the sidewalk, but the scaffolding's there in a way, so you get used to it. But then there comes this day when you're, when you're walking down the street and you turn the corner and all of a sudden you say to yourself, something is different about this street. And then all of a sudden you realize, I got a witness down here, all of a sudden you realize that the scaffolding is gone and in the place of the scaffolding is the building for which the scaffolding was put up in the first place. Once the work is finished, The scaffolding goes away, and what is revealed is a new structure. Now, when you read through the story of the Old Testament, you soon see that at the center of Israel's community was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place where they went to worship. The tabernacle was the place where Israel went for instruction. The tabernacle was the place where they brought their sins for forgiveness. And though we have many differences with Israel of old, we share these similarities. We too have places where we go for worship. We too have places where we go for instruction. We too have places where we go to try and deal with our sin the guilt within, the plagued conscience, our sense of insufficiency, whether you try to cover your sense of insufficiency with education and credentials, whether you try to cover up your sense of guilt and shame with the performance of nice deeds and and do-gooding for the people around you, we all have a place where we try to get these things handled In our lives. But in our passage for today, friends, the writer of the book of Hebrews sets out to show his friends that the tabernacle of old was scaffolding. The tabernacle of old was scaffolding. It was a temporary institution that was meant to give way to the permanent structure that was to come. They must They must move on from the scaffolding. He wants them to see that something different is here. And now they must go to Jesus for worship. Now they must go to Jesus for instruction. Now they must go to Jesus with their sins in order to handle their guilty conscience and their sense of self-loathing and insufficiency. 
They must go to Jesus. And we must do the same. That's the message of this text today. The scaffolding gives way to the true and lasting building. The work of Christ is finished. The scaffolding goes away, and now we have the permanent structure. And as we approach our text for today, we're going to use two points where we see through this passage in the book of Hebrews a new day of atonement and a new day of access. A new day of atonement and a new day of access. So let's look at our first point where we see a new day of atonement. Now, if you look at your text, if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, this is one of those important anchor points in the book of Hebrews. If you're trying to study the book of Hebrews and you're trying to figure out what the book of Hebrews is about, one of the first things you do to try and understand a book of the Bible, here's a little Bible study pro tip, is you look to see if the author reveals the purpose of their writing. And in this case, in the book of Hebrews, we have that. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. What's the point, writer, of the book of Hebrews? Verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. This is the point. The whole emphasis is the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Now, here's the deal. Apart from the book of Hebrews, we don't have a blatant, forthright statement of the priesthood of Christ anywhere else in Scripture. This, this is all new teaching, chap, starting with chapter 7 all the way through chapter 9. This is new teaching. This is where we learn and discover in a very forthright manner, the high priesthood of Jesus. This is the point. By virtue of his appointment, my God, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, by virtue of his ascension to the right hand of God, Jesus is our great high priest. And as our great high priest, he is fully and definitively effective as our high priest because he possesses a unique quality of life. And it's upon the basis of that life that he's able to carry out an everlasting ministry on our behalf. Listen, a lot of people don't understand the real point of Orthodox Christian theology. What the church has always believed in all places at all times, that's orthodoxy. That's, that's what we share, the communion of saints. This is what every Christian believes and always has believed. That Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. That is Nicene orthodoxy. They didn't make Christ God at Nicaea. They recognized and codified scriptural teaching on who Jesus is. But here's the point. Who Jesus is, the person of Christ, is what lends all the weight and all the value to his work. If he is not fully God, fully man, then his work for us cannot stand. That's the importance of knowing the book and of knowing our faith. But it's, this is what he says as we covered our passage on Melchizedek last week. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek who? What? New to the Bible? It's all right. This is what he's saying. This is how we know Jesus is a great high priest. He was appointed by God, and 
by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, he shows that he executes an everlasting ministry for his people. Now, here's what he didn't cover with the Melchizedek reference. He didn't cover one particular aspect of the priestly ministry of Christ. And you know what that aspect is? Sacrifice. Sacrifice was integral to the work of the priesthood. This was something really important to what they did. It was, it was, it was central to their work in many ways. You could say this, but he hasn't covered this aspect of the ministry of Christ yet. So that's what he's about to do in chapters 8 and 9. Do you, are you following? First, he establishes the, the appointment of Jesus to be high priest and the uniqueness of his priesthood. But now he's going to talk about the sacrificial component of his priesthood. This aspect of his priesthood, they need to appreciate. Why did Jesus have to die? Why was that necessary? That's what this passage gets into in our text. The writer has said all of these things using Melchizedek, but now he's going to develop the sacrificial aspect. This is where he's heading in our passage. The big picture of the way that he frames up our understanding of the sacrificial ministry of Christ is by laying a backdrop for his listeners. And you know what that backdrop is? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the landscape. This is the backdrop. This is how he brings the ministry of Christ, his priestly ministry, into clearer relief. He, he lays his backdrop. Now remember, we're dealing with a Hellenistic Jewish audience. That means they were Jews who were, who were flowing in Greek culture, all right? And they knew this passage of Scripture. They knew the passages from which we're drawn. Now, if, if you are trying to figure out how do I understand more about what's going on here, write down in your notes Leviticus 16. That's all about the Day of Atonement. And I want you to also check out Exodus chapters 25 through chapter 31 with particular emphasis on Exodus chapter 28, all right? This is, this is what we have as the backdrop, but I want to tell the story a little bit of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the high holy day of Israel, this was the most important day in their calendar. And in order to get a sense of, of its magnitude, of its impact, I want you to think about the holidays that really shut down our American culture, where everything stops. Think about, uh, think about the holidays in December, all right? No matter, no matter what your standing is in your, in your, as far as your religious status or non-religious status, we all recognize that in December, everything changes. It slows down, right? The work schedules change. People are off of work. There are new patterns that people develop. That gets at something of what the Day of Atonement was like, except this. It wasn't this day of celebration and jubilee. It was a day of fasting and mourning because it was on this day that the high priest was designated to deal with the sins of the people. That's what this day was all about. And so we're focusing in here on the tabernacle. 
Everything swirls around this center. If you remember, the tabernacle, as God designed the tabernacle, was placed in the center of the Israelite camp. And what it signified was that the presence of God was the center of the community. And at the center, of you have the tabernacle. This was the place of worship. This is where they got instruction. This is where they brought their sins on the Day of Atonement. And guess who was responsible for that? The high priest. Now, if you read in Exodus chapter 28, there's something really powerful and beautiful that the listeners would have already known and assumed that may be a bit veiled for us. And it had to do with visualizing what is happening on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, I want you to picture the high priest garbed in the outfit that is described in Exodus 28. All right? His typical dress was one of dignity and glory. It was gold and blue and purple and scarlet. It was majestic coloring. But also what we see in Exodus chapter 28 is that the high priest was instructed to place two stones on patches on the shoulders. And those two stones were engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel. They were called stones of remembrance. Six names on one, six names on the other. It was, it was on his shoulders. He was carrying the nation on his shoulders. And then he had a breast piece. And on that breast piece, there were 12 precious stones. And those 12 precious stones were each engraved with the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. One name on each stone until he got to 12. And this is what Exodus says. Exodus chapter 28. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. He's got the 12 tribes on his shoulder. He's got the 12 tribes on his heart. And then Exodus 28 says that he also has a turban on. And on that turban is a gold plate that says, holy to the Lord. And he is about to execute his ministry for the people. He, he has this, this garb of, of glory and dignity. But on the day of atonement, he is instructed to come into the tabernacle. And then what he does is he takes all that garb off. The garb of glory and dignity. He takes it all off and then he puts on what you could understand to be his work clothes. He puts on a linen tunic with a linen sash and a, a linen turban. Because what he's about to do is the work of sacrifice. He's about to get animals. He's going to get a bull. And first he gets the bull. In order to sacrifice the bull, the blood is being shed. And picture it. The man in white linen is being spattered with the blood of the sacrificial victim. The bull is sacrificed to atone for his own sins. 
because the high priest of Israel was still a sinner himself. He takes that in to the holy place, and then he's passing through the holy of holies. But before he goes in, before he passes through the curtain, the holy of holies, the place of God's manifest presence, he lights a golden censer with incense that smokes because he cannot lay his eyes upon God as a sinner without perishing himself. So he lets all the smoke from the censer out so it's cloudy in that place. He enters in with the blood from the bull. He splashes it on the mercy seat to cover his own sins. He goes back out and then he gets two goats. Two goats for the sins of the people. Now, the, the two goats were for two distinct pictures. The one goat would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And the other goat would be sent out into the wilderness to symbolize that the sins of the people were carried away. He would sacrifice the goat, take the blood of the goat into the Holy of Holies again with the censer, and he would splash the blood on the mercy seat, making atonement, for the sins of the people, and then he would come back out of the Holy of Holies. And then after that, you know what they would do? They would take that second goat, remember? The first goat sacrificed. But then they would take the second goat, and the high priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat, symbolizing the transfer of guilt to the goat from the people and from himself, and then he would send it off, and then they would take all of the remains of the, of the animals, they would take them outside the camp and burn them. And then after the work of the high priest was completed, he would take off those bloody clothes. He would bathe in the laver, and then once again, he would put on the clothes of dignity, the clothes of glory, where it represented him continuing to carry Israel on his heart, continuing to carry Israel on his shoulders. You know, there were bells on his clothes because as he went in there, there was always a, a question, is he going to make it out? Is his sacrifice going to be accepted? But when he would emerge from the Holy of Holies and from the holy place, there would be a great sigh of relief among the people, knowing that the work of their high priest was complete and their sins were covered. Look at the depiction here. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is doing by laying this backdrop for us? Look at chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared, <laughs> but when Christ appeared, this is the way that the priestly ministry used to be executed. But when Christ appeared, everything flipped. In other words, the scaffolding was there to point us to the great high priesthood of Jesus. He was garbed, as it were, in the glory and dignity of his divinity. He carried his people on his heart from eternity past. He always was holy to the Lord. But
But when it came time to do the most definitive work of atonement for his people, he, as it were, took off the clothes of glory and dignity and he put on his work clothes. He took on human flesh so that he could go in and make atonement for the sins of his people. But what Hebrews is trying to show us is that he's a superior high priest because he doesn't need to make atonement for his own sins. He makes atonement for the sins of his people. And they're like, well, what was the the sacrifice that he offered? What was the gift that he offered? What was the evidence that could be presented before the Lord to take away the sins of the people? He says it was himself. He was the sacrifice. He was the priest. Every element in the tabernacle pointed to him. He is the bread of the presence of God. He is the labor where we wash away our sins. He is the light of the world. All of this was scaffolding, pointing to Jesus. And now, look at this. He puts on the work clothes of humanity. He completes the work of redemption. It's as if he places his own hands on his head to transfer our guilt to himself. He is the goat that was sacrificed. He is the goat, the scapegoat that was sent out symbolizing that our sins have been taken away. He, the writer of Hebrews will later say, was sacrificed outside of the camp. He was taken outside of the camp. A whole, a whole offering. And it is through him that our sins are dealt with. It is through him that our conscience can be made clean. But after he did that work, you know, listen, there's a reason why scripture takes pains to detail the sufferings of Christ. Because the high priest was simply wearing linen clothes that were spattered with blood. But when we look at the gospel accounts, we see that it was Jesus himself, his body torn and broken because he was the sacrifice. But here's the good news, y'all. That's not the end of the story. The end of the story is not Jesus hanging on the cross. The end of the story is not Jesus in the tomb. The story bursts forth into new hope, into new possibility, into the resurrection life. And after he rises... From the dead, there is evidence that the sacrifice was accepted. That you don't have to keep making atonement for your own sins and failures. You don't have to beat yourself up in order to try and quell God's anger. God ain't mad at you. His anger was spent on his son. That's the good news, y'all. His anger is no more because your sin is no more. When you trust in Christ, your sin is taken away because of his high priestly ministry. Do you see the picture? The priest taking off the clothes of glory and dignity, putting on the work clothes. But then guess what? He puts those clothes of dignity back on. He appears to his people in the resurrection and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and under earth. Go 
be my witnesses. That's essentially what's happening in his passage. He lays the day of atonement backdrop in order to shine the light on the priestly ministry of Jesus. This is why we are determined to hold out the work of Christ in the particular way that we do. There there are lots of theological and biblical trends throughout, well, starting with the 18th and 19th century, that have tried to reduce Jesus to a moral example, a moral exemplar. Jesus is a good example of how you must live. Self-sacrifice, he has solidarity with the disenfranchised, the poor, the broken, the needy, the hurting, with women, with, with people who were ostracized at the time. And all of that is true, but he's more than a, just a, a moral example. He's more than just your example. If Jesus were just your example, he would show you what you should be, but could never become. That's what B.B. Warfield says, the Lion of Princeton. He would show you what you ought to be. That's the way you ought to live, but you would be powerless to actually live like that. But here's the good news. Jesus is more than your moral example. He's your redeemer. He's your high priest. And when he makes atonement for your sin and pours out his spirit on you, now you are not only forgiven, but empowered to live up into the beauty of the life that he lives. That's, he is a beautiful example of what humanity was supposed to be like. He's not less than that, but he's more than that. And that's what this text is, is laying in for us. In Christ, we are now given access to God. That's the good news. Now we have access, which brings us to our second point. A new day of access. What happened on Good Friday, what happened in the resurrection, that's portrayed as the new day of atonement. And now we have access. There is a democratization, a spreading of access to the people of God. One of the things I want you to see, look at chapter 9, verse 6. Listen to this. I want you to listen to the limitations that are pressed in this text. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, deal only with food and drink. Do you see the whole section is meant to highlight the limitations? We can't get in. It's like the bouncer's at the door and you don't have a VIP pass. You can't get into the presence of God. No one could, but in Christ. All of us are given access by faith in Christ to the presence of God. It was one day a year by one person in the nation, and he had to come with all of these special requirements. That's how restricted access was, because God could not let us into his presence, and it remained safe for us. It's dangerous for sinful people to get close to God. But Jesus not only gives us access, he makes the access safe and beautiful and good, because he takes away 
The thing that was creating distance between us. The pastoral application, remember, this is a sermon. The pastoral application comes in chapter 9, verse 14. He purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the old covenant, everything that happened at the tabernacle, sin was not really dealt with. Sin was passed over. There was something affected on the outside. They had ceremonial purity, but not purity in the conscience. Not, not that cleansing on the inside. He says, but when Christ comes, he doesn't just pass over the sins. He completely removes the sin. And that's the good news. Now you can have a clear conscience. Now you can have a pure conscience before God. You know why? Because all of your sin, all of your failure, all of your selfishness, all of your self-righteousness, all of your pride and the ugliness in your soul, we all got it. Even those of us who think we're the most progressive in the bunch. We all got that. If you've ever said, those backwoods sons of guns or something to that effect. <laughs> if you've ever said that, that's pride in your heart and self-righteousness because you, you have progressive righteousness. Your righteousness is in how progressive you are. And if you've ever been on the other side and you said, wow, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Those people, they're just doing all this wild stuff. You, you have conservative righteousness. You, you, your righteousness is in how restricted and, and, and close to God's heart you are. Don't you see both of them, both kinds of righteousness, progressive righteousness and conservative righteousness will find you under the judgment of God. It is the righteousness of Christ that suffices to leave you with a clear conscience. Your righteousness is not in how progressive you are or how conservative you are. Both are broken. Fact. Amen. I'm glad I got an amen here in Washington, D.C. We see that, y'all. And I'm not politicizing up here. What I'm trying to show you is a particular practical outworking that you can have a clear conscience before God through the work of Christ. That's the good news. The new day of atonement has come and with it a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, new access to God. The old covenant, the law was good. It was righteous. It was holy. But the people were the problem. That's why he quotes Jeremiah 31. Do you see that? He quotes it. Because the people were the problem. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with the people because they couldn't maintain a relationship with God through their law, through their principles, through their do-gooding, through their morality, through their activity. That wasn't, that wasn't sufficient. The law, y'all, check it out. The law reveals our sin. But the great high priest, this passage says, removes our sin. The law exposed us, but Christ covers us. The law tells you how crooked you are. And Jesus comes along and straightens you out. The law brings out all of our failures, but the scriptures bring out all of Christ's successes on our behalf. The law condemns the best of us, but Christ redeems the worst of us. That is good news. We have, we have a new covenant and God is about the work of writing his law on our hearts. He is renewing us from the inside. But we have to see that at the center of it, this one picture, that the lawmaker, 
became a law keeper in order to save the lawbreakers. Do you see that? The lawmaker. How'd I say that now? <laughs> the, all right, y'all got that, right? The, the lawmaker became the lawkeeper and died to save the lawbreakers. That, that's essentially how we have the new covenant. The scaffolding has fallen away, and now it's a new day of access. So why don't you take your wounded heart to the one who cares for you? Take your heart to the one who has demonstrated his great affection for you. When you're in need, when you're feeling lonely, when you're feeling worthless, when you really, really sin bad. Do you see God is available to you? This is a completely different picture of God than most people are accustomed to. God's not out to get you in that way. Evidence? Jesus. He's provided a priestly ministry for you. And to this day, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father pleading your case. So the invitation is, come to Jesus with your worship. Come to Jesus for instruction to learn how his heart works so that your heart may begin to beat according to that rhythm. Come to Jesus with your sin. He is our great high priest, and that's good news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. We are grateful, and we ask that you would work in our hearts to help us to know his priestly ministry, to know that we are now belongers because he was cast out, to know that we are made new because he suffered. Help us to have hope in the resurrection that as it went for Jesus, so it shall be for us. And Lord, help us to live out of this this place of hope and joy as we seek to serve the people around us and be a blessing to them and care for them. We ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.